Hi, I'm Dr Andrea Carson. This is the Crisis in Communication podcast series for La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm not going to give you a question. Can you stay counter? You are fake news. To talk about facts, it's a big challenge. You'll hear a lively analysis on problems for democracy in the digital age. The Prime Minister must and will be heard. Subscribe where you are listening or on your favourite podcast app. I'd rather be dead in a ditch. What on earth is the point of a further delay? Hello and welcome to La Trobe University's Communication in Crisis podcast series, featuring La Trobe academics talking about the big issues in politics and media today. The five-part series explores problems for democracies around leadership in language, political polarization, populism, resistance and silence of minority groups. Today, our theme is protest and resistance, and our discussion in this episode will take us to Hong Kong, Indonesia and Chile, Three places which in 2019 saw large-scale and at times violent protests against government policies that were widely perceived as favoring elites and ignoring public opinion. In the studio to analyze the reasons behind the protests, the demands articulated by the demonstrators and the responses by state actors are Dr. Raul Sanchez-Uribari from La Trobe's Department of Social Inquiry, Associate Professor James Leibold from the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy, and myself, Dirk Tomsa, also from the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy. Welcome, gentlemen. Yeah, great to be here with you. Hello there. Let's start off our discussion by briefly explaining why we chose those three case studies and how we can contextualize the protests, demonstrations, and resistance movements within the broader theme of this podcast series, which is communication in crisis. Protests like the ones we're talking about today may be triggered by specific events, but they are symptoms of a broader global trend of growing public discontent about inequality, elitism, and a perceived lack of responsiveness from democratically elected governments. Today, we chose Hong Kong, Indonesia, and Chile. In all these countries, people have taken to the streets in recent months to express their frustration with this growing divide between political decision makers and ordinary people. What connects our three cases? is that these countries have long been held up as beacons of democracy that seem to have succeeded against particularly challenging odds. Chile and Indonesia, for example, both democratized as part of the third wave of democracy in the 1980s and 1990s and overcame difficult legacies of military rule and financial hardship to emerge as the strongest democracies in their respective regions. Hong Kong, in the meantime, has long defied expectations and defended its peculiar form of political autonomy against the seemingly overwhelming power of China. But despite the democratic achievements of the last two decades, governments in all three cases appear to be increasingly removed from the concerns of an increasing number of citizens. This is evident not only in unpopular policy decisions that seem to favor only the elites, but also in a failure to communicate the reasons behind making these decisions and refusing to provide mechanisms to inform and articulate policy. As a result, people no longer feel represented by parliaments and governments. Desperate to make themselves heard, they take to the streets in an effort to establish new channels of communication. All right, let's take a closer look now at what's been happening in those three countries. Uh, Chile, Indonesia and Hong Kong have been in the news quite a lot. In the last few months, especially Hong Kong, and um, let's start with Hong Kong, I suppose. Uh, so, James, what triggered these recent protests and how do they relate to protests that we've seen in previous years? Sure thing, Dirk. Yeah. Um, I mean, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you're probably aware of, to some extent, the uh, ongoing 
six months of uh, protest in Hong Kong. Now, these protests have mainly been peaceful, but uh, increasingly have become quite violent uh, with uh, student protesters uh, battling anti-riot police uh, across shopping malls, city streets, university campuses, and even at one stage, the Hong Kong International Airport. Now, this week, uh, we're uh, recording this podcast, uh, the week of the 11th of November, has really witnessed the highest level of violence, quite disturbing uh, incidents with uh, one college student shot at point-blank range by a, a traffic cop and another uh, elderly construction worker being set ablaze by a protester. The uh, chief representative of the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong has now warned that the city is sliding into the abyss of terrorism and has really called on the Hong Kong authorities to crack down uh, further on the violence. The trigger of this event was actually an act of legislation that the Hong Kong government under its leader, Carrie Lam, uh, sought to introduce back in March an extradition bill that would have seen the possibility that Hong Kong residents could have been extradited back to the People's Republic of China. And this created quite a bit of concern amongst uh, its citizenry. That is really a reflection of a perception amongst many people in Hong Kong that the autonomy that they were promised uh, when Hong Kong returned to Chinese sovereignty in 1997 is being slowly eroded. For many of them, we're halfway towards this 50-year period that the PRC promised that Hong Kong would be able to uh, administer its own affairs. And for many people in Hong Kong, they feel that this uh, autonomy has been gradually eroded. What about uh, in Chile, Raul? Are we seeing something similar? What set off the protests in Chile? I was just taking notes as I was listening to you. In a way, perception shapes response. Even a small thing, in the case, for example, of, of Chile, what might have been a quote-unquote small issue, the rise of the price of public transport in Chile, it was relatively small, if we want to call it that way, yet it was a trigger event that catalyzed a reaction from not only the group of the population that was most affected at the beginning, students who were the first ones to protest, but as time passed by and as the government began reacting, not so much to listen to the concerns of the citizens, but actually trying to put pressure and repressing the population, the drive of the protests began increasing and also began incorporate, incorporating, including more and more voices that felt disaffected. Uh, in the Chilean case, I feel that that's what explains what could have been probably a protest that took place in a couple of days, ended up being weeks of protests escalating more and more, rocking the whole country and leading to political transformations that would have been unthinkable actually just a few days ago. Mm. How about Indonesia, Dirk? Yeah, the Indonesian protests are not quite as um, sustained or have not been as quite as sustained as the ones in Hong Kong and Chile. They were only for um, a few weeks and then died down relatively quickly, I would say. And the real mass protests were only a few days. So there was a slow buildup, basically. The peak, it was um, around 50,000 who are estimated to be protesting across different cities in Indonesia, mm -hmm. mostly those with universities because it was led by students. But then after it peaked, it also died down relatively quickly. Where we have parallels is in the terms of trigger event. Um, mm -hmm. The parallel, for example, with Hong Kong, legislation. Same case in the Indonesian case. It was a piece of legislation that enraged students 
And it was so galvanizing for this protest because it targeted the one institution that basically every Indonesian trusts. And levels of trust in political institutions generally are quite low in Indonesia. But mm. the institution of the Anti-Corruption Commission, this Corruption Eradication Commission was weakened with this new legislation. And there had been many attempts before to do that. Parliament had tried to take away powers from the commission in previous years. And every time that happened, there were protests. And previously, the government always then stepped in and said, okay, we we won't do these um, changes. But this time around, it seemed that public opinion didn't matter. Um, the executive under President Jokowi and the parliament worked together on this and pushed these revisions to this law through parliament very quickly in just a matter of days, when normally negotiating legislation takes weeks or months. Mm. Um, so within days, the Corruption Eradication Commission had lost various powers, um, a board um, was established with, where the members, uh, they, they would supervise the commission and the members of this board would be selected by the government. Therefore, the institution basically lost its independence. Um, its wiretap um, authorities were taken away and various other um, measures were put into this law. So this was really the trigger. So there were various dimensions to this, but the broad sort of theme that ran through all this is this is an agenda run by political elites, often sort of mixed in with the interests of conservative religious elites against the interests of large parts of the population who feel sort of disenfranchised, yeah. basically. And so maybe that's a link to the uh, situation in Hong Kong. Uh, James, you were talking about Hong Kong having a special status ideological conflict, basically, ideological differences with the People's Republic of China. Um, so what exactly are the protesters in Hong Kong demanding? I mean, they have a clear set of five uh, demands, the first one being the, the withdrawal of the extradition treaty, which um, the Hong Kong government has agreed to, to do. But many of their other demands touch upon more sensitive issues, such as how protesters are being characterized. Are they protesters? Are they rioters? Uh, calling for an independent commission to look at police conduct and brutality calling for the resignation of the chief executive of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, Carrie Lam, as well as uh, the implementation of universal suffrage for all political leaders. And so this you know, gets at the heart of that issue of autonomy for Hong Kong. But there's also socioeconomic issues at play here. Hong Kong is arguably one of the most unequal societies in the entire world. There are roughly uh, 100 uh, billionaires who call Hong Kong their home, but yet one in five Hong Kong residents live in poverty or live below the poverty line. And so not only do they feel a kind of disconnect with uh, the Hong Kong elite who have really kind of cast their lot in with the Chinese Communist Party, but they also feel like they can't see a kind of clear future for themselves inside Hong Kong under the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. What, what about Chile, Rao? I mean, what have the um, protesters made specific demands? So I noted in your recent response, Jim, three key issues. One, inequality. Chile happens to be one of the most unequal societies in Latin America that is affecting most of the citizens, but it cannot be channeled through the normal political institutional means available. And I find that a parallel to your description of the situation in in Hong Kong. 
Um, that brings us to the second point, the issue of the legitimacy of the system. I was looking at, at data on the uh, Latin American Public Opinion Project recently, and the number of, uh, the proportion of Chileans who don't support the system who have strong reservations about it is actually at an all-time high, according to the, la to the last count. And it had been growing. And I also noticed that the proportion of those who said, no, 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 the system is good, actually increased, showing then not only increasing a loss of legitimacy, but also polarization. Yeah. Um, the third aspect that I want to talk about is the issue of the, of the nature of the political project. It's interesting, Chile, one of the perhaps the most important, if not one of the most impressive successes of, of democracy in Latin America, happens to be taking place on the basis of the, night of the, of the constitution that was created and approved during, Pinochet, during the years of the Pinochet dictatorship. Uh, if you think about it, well, that happened almost four decades ago. Now, when you think about it, it should be time by now that the Constitution was either significantly reformed or overhauled. There had been attempts already, but core parts of the political elite were resistant to those changes. That brings me to the demands. Trigger event, main demands, step back and do away with the increase of the prices of public transport. But from there, demands escalated quickly. And they channel in different directions depending on what group we're talking about. Ranging from some groups that actually went all the way to asking for Piñera's resignation, or the resignation, for example, of part of the cabinet members and so forth, to other broader changes and reforms. But the political opportunity that had led to more and more people taking the streets actually ended up channeling major demands, bigger than the ones that had initially been proposed, all the way to requesting a major transformation of the political system. Yeah. Mm. There's an interesting difference here to Indonesia, as you say, um, as you describe the situation in Chile, that there's now a perception that the constitution needs to change because it wasn't changed when the transition to democracy actually happened, right? Was, was it completely unchanged or was it just um, revised in bits and pieces? There, were, there was revised in bits and pieces. For instance, the constitution specifically uh, prevents leaders, for instance, from unions to run for political posts. That's one of the sort of institutional quote-unquote solutions that were really part of an autocratic state. Mm. Yeah, I was saying there's a difference because in Indonesia, it's that uh, the case that the um, amendments that were made to the constitution in the early years of the democratic transition were quite comprehensive, very comprehensive. And now what we see is actually that many of those reforms that were initiated in those early years, um, they are being attacked by the political elites who mm. feel that, oh, this has actually gone too far. Um, so now there's talk about a new amendment that would basically reinstate some of the old powers um, for this parliamentary superbody that existed during the authoritarian regime before. I wanted to say briefly something about the two sort of buzzwords that you mentioned here, inequality and polarization. James, you've said Hong Kong is a very, very unequal society. Raul, you mentioned that Chile is one of the most unequal in Latin America. And I can say the same thing about Indonesia and Southeast Asia. I mean, others like Thailand, for example, also have massive problems with inequality. But it's also high in Indonesia. And I think the way that plays into these protests is that there's this perception amongst protesters that the interests of um, big business and politics are now so fused with each other that 
protesters now often use this terminology that we often use in academia. The oligarchy mm. is dominating politics, right? And it's so removed from the interests mm. of ordinary people like us that inequality becomes politicized, right? And in terms of polarization, the Indonesian case is also interesting because Indonesia was very polarized during the last two elections between supporters and opponents of the incumbent president. Um, but what we're seeing now in these protests is that there are students from both sides of the divide in terms of the political candidates, the political affiliations. Students who supported both of these candidates during the election are now protesting together because they are united in their opposition against what the elites are doing with the Anti-Corruption Commission and these various other things like environmental destruction, criminalization of political uh, critics, etc. So while there is still a strong sense of polarization along various issues, especially religion, religion and politics, etc., or the the figureheads of the political camps, like the political leaders, when it comes to corruption, most Indonesians are in the same boat. And that's often reflected also in public opinion polls. And what we can see now is that this kind of unified response against what the elites are doing is either not understood by the elites or dismissed. And we see that in the uh, response by the state actors. Uh, many politicians, cabinet members, parliamentarians came out saying, look, I don't know what these protesters really want. We just have the best interests of the country you know, in our heads when we're doing this. Um, and this, they accuse the protesters of not understanding politics, not understanding how the system works. Uh, when in fact it's probably the other way around. The protesters know exactly how the system works and they're unhappy with it. And this sort of condescending, patronizing attitude from elites, um, that's what I think partly contributed to the escalation of some of these protests into violence. What's been the response to the protests in our other two cases? When we're talking about response, we need to talk about the response from Beijing, the Chinese Communist Party, and the response of uh, local officials in Hong Kong. And in case of Beijing, I think they're really willing to play the long game here. Ideally, they'd like to see these protests be eliminated, but they're not necessarily willing to do it through external force. So in terms of the local authorities, they've certainly been ramping up the rhetoric as the violence continued. And there, I think what they're trying to do, and I guess this is where you know, local authorities in Beijing are on the same page, is they're hoping to kind of divide Hong Kong society. And hence why this has played out over six months is hoping that over time public opinion will sway and this will result in an end of the protests and end of the violence. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be what's happening though. And we've really seen in the last couple of weeks this super escalation where I think um, the protesters feel a sense of desperation that, you know, we're going to make a kind of final stand here. I think both sides feel like we're, we're reaching a crescendo of sorts. Um, what about in Chile, Raul? Um, how has the state responded? Look, it's an excellent question. The first reaction, I think, it was pretty much shock therapy. It was a mass presence of the carabineros, of the, of the police and the military in the streets. As the protests became violent, then the repression also became increasingly violent, leading to hundreds of arrests, wounded people, have been reports also of people who were 
killed in different incidents and different demonstrations over the, over the course of the last few days. Uh, on top of that, there has been massive disruption, as you, as you described, both from the protests taking place, but also from the repression and the increasing presence of police. So that has devolved into not only the actual effect of all these specific uh, incidents and even uh, violations of human rights as have already been denounced at the national and international level, but also creating a, a, a very strong sense of, of unease in the, in the population. Um, what strikes me from not listening to, to our conversation is that these three cases and many other cases show the ugly side of repressive policing tactics. And I think that um, increased use of repression um, captures very neatly um, the essence of this podcast. You know, we call it a crisis in communication. Um, elites have no responses in a proper dialogue, so they resort to other means. And of course, well, repression and violence is also a form of communication. And uh, we could go now into a whole discussion of the repertoire of action that social movements develop. But um, yeah, we'll just, uh, I guess, wait and see how these various movements evolve over the coming months. Seems like the, um, the Hong Kong one is probably the most um, volatile, perhaps. Volatile. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I've got a feeling that, um, I mean, I hate making predictions, but I have a feeling, as I said before, we're reaching a crescendo here and um, something has to give. And I think it's going to be maybe curfews, martial law, uh, mass arrests, you know, because it's had a devastating impact on the Hong Kong economy. There's talk now that it will slip into recession. And as all, both of you gentlemen know, I mean, Hong Kong is a major international city uh, with, um, you know, not only tourists coming through, but, you know, uh, travelers who transit through Hong Kong. And so it does seem that something has to give at some stage. Rao, how is it going to end in Chile? I don't think it's going to end yet. I think it's still going to go on, <laughs> and, and definitely the creation of a new constitution is going to channel all these different events into hopefully a more constructive political initiative. But how exactly that's going to happen or that's going to play, whether, for example, the protests will continue and what that will entail for the um, Chilean uh, government is still yet to be, to be seen. A couple of things that I want to say before ending. One with all these polarized events, try to source as many trustable sources that you can find that provide different kinds of commentary to get an informed view of the situation. Because a big part of the problem, as we know, is precisely that these different events are often portrayed, distorted, manipulated, and particularly in the era of social media, crafted into narratives that favor one side or the other and so forth. It's a time to be looking for, I think, good resources to make sense of them. Most certainly. Hmm. I think in Indonesia, for the moment, it's died down. And I think it will, for the moment at least, um, the, the students have retreated and they will want to see what Jacobi is now doing as he's just started a second term. Remember five years ago when he came to power, he came to power on the platform of campaigning on behalf of the people, right? Just sort of soft populist approach. He was portraying himself to be different from the elites that he would listen to the people. His whole campaign five years ago was about going out to markets, to neighborhoods and actually talk to people, right? But then the five years 
of his presidency so far have been an utter disappointment for his supporters because that what he promised did not occur. The protesters are supporters of both Jacobi and Prabovo, but it is telling that these are not anti-government protests by his opponents. His supporters are out there as well because they are disappointed what happened under Jokowi's rule in the first five years. So I think that the grievances are largely unaddressed. So they remain. There may well be another trigger coming down in the in the next couple of months or the next couple of years. It's hard to say. But what plays in favor of the government is that Indonesia civil society has traditionally been quite fragmented and has been difficult to mobilize large amounts of people behind the same cause. These protests were remarkable in that they brought in groups with different kinds of interests, uh, be that the environment, be that human rights, be that politics, the economy, etc., and largely students. But it really needed that trigger with the Anti-Corruption Commission. And whether they will be um, able to maintain that momentum remains to be seen. All right. Great. Thanks, gentlemen. Let's end our episode for the Crisis in Communication podcast series for now. So you listened to Raul sanchez Uribari, James Leibold, and Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University's Political Communications Research Group. You can subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Crisis in Communication is produced by Courtney Carthy for the Political Communications Researchers at La Trobe University. I am Andrea Carson, an Associate Professor in Politics and Media at La Trobe and co-founder of the La Trobe Political Communications Research Group, sponsoring this series. Thanks for listening.